So if you were here last week or watched online or maybe listened to the audio version, uh, you know that we covered an awful lot of ground last week. Uh, Not a lot of verses necessarily, um, but some really deep Christian life kind of meaty topics. There is a lot for us to contemplate and consider, but now you've had an entire week to contemplate and consider and and perfect all of those doctrinal truths that we discussed last week. Thank you, Kim. So you've had an entire week to absorb and and enact those life lessons from last week, and so we're just going to pick up from where we left off. We'll assume all that work has been done, and we're going to build on that moving forward. Uh, However, if you look at today's text, it starts off with the word, therefore. And if you've learned anything from your time here at Grace Fellowship, it's that whenever you see therefore, you need to figure out what that therefore is there for. (laughs) To what is it referring? So we're going to have to do a quick recap of uh, last week's text, just to give us some therefore context. So I'm going to try to make this as quick and relatively painless as possible, um, if possible. At at the the last half of chapter 1 and easing into chapter 2, we read that Paul makes a fairly strong appeal to church unity. He calls on the church to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. He calls us to be united as we strive side by side for the gospel. Now these are fairly lofty. Um, but attainable goals for a gathering of Christ followers who are emboldened and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he made two points specific to the significance of church unity. Uh, He said that a, a church unified, a church that continues to build on their faith together, will stand firm in the face of adversity and suffering. So unity in the face of suffering and persecution, in fact, is a sure sign of their salvation. It proves to the world that we are truly Christ followers because we stand together when persecuted. I mean, how else can so many different kinds of people with so many weirdos in the mix, with so little else in common, how can we stand together if not for the sake of Christ? He also says that a unified church that stands firm through hardship that actually sends a notice to the oppressors, to the persecutors, that there is a God and he is not to be trifled with. I mean, how else can ordinary people suffer and even die for a cause but for the grace and power and commitment to an almighty God? Emboldened and empowered by the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is pretty serious stuff that Paul lays out here. And and this has been proven true throughout the history of the church. When the church stands together, they can face persecution. And in fact, the church has grown, has prospered during times of suffering and persecution. You know, just this morning, I got a message from someone um, that contained a letter that Corey Ten Boom wrote uh, some time ago. And if if you know Corey, she was a Dutch author of The Hiding Place. Uh, Family was sent to a concentration camp for hiding Jews from the Nazis. And after surviving the concentration concentration camp, she wrote this letter to American churches, to American pastors. And it says, in part, many are fearful of the coming tribulation. They want to run. I, too, am a little bit afraid when I think that after all my 80 years, including the horrible Nazi concentration camp, that I I might have to go through the tribulation also. But then I read the Bible, and I'm glad. When I'm weak, then I shall be strong, the Bible says. Betsy and I were prisoners for the Lord. We were so weak, but we got power because the Holy Spirit was on us. That mighty inner strengthening of the Holy Spirit helped us through. 
No, you will not be strong in yourself when the tribulation comes. Rather, you will be strong in the power of him who will not forsake you. For 76 years, I've known the Lord Jesus, and not once has he ever left me or let me down. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. For I know that to all who overcome, he shall give the crown of life. Hallelujah. Thank you for coming. That will... (laughs) She's just confirming what Paul wrote from his own prison cell. As followers of Christ, we have been given the opportunity for both salvation and suffering. We've been granted these as gifts, he says, that we may live them out for the sake of Christ. And even more than that, he says, we can find joy in both, both in our salvation and in our suffering. Then Paul kind of gave us this this roadmap for how we are to live out our our salvation. He says, here's how you walk worthy. And the big ideas were, in the last half of one and early part of two, you should treat others with love and, and sympathy and compassion. Don't be selfish. Think of others above yourself. Above all, practice humility. And these are all easy to say, harder to do kinds of things. But again, we have the Holy Spirit. So Paul provides this amazing argument for why we are to practice humility, and he says basically because Jesus did. That's why you're supposed to do it, because Jesus did it. You know, we we looked at those at least five different levels of humility that, that Jesus lived out during his lifetime, how he went from a throne to a manger to a cross. Willingly, necessarily, for our benefit. And that serves as our example. So after laying all of this out, Paul says, therefore, let's pray. Lord, we are, as every week, we are grateful for the chance to gather here together as followers of Christ, as as believers in Jesus, as the Son of God, as our Messiah, the one who died in our place. Lord, we're we're grateful for the chance to be here to gather together, to worship together, um, to celebrate the fact that we do have salvation, and to understand, hopefully, and and even find joy in the fact that we've been granted suffering as well. That is is part of our salvation. So we pray for humility, we we pray for uh, other-mindedness, and we pray just for for the opportunity, uh, the chances that you give us to help find joy in times of suffering and persecution and trial. May we be strengthened by these words, as the early church was, no doubt. And we thank you for the chance to grow uh, in our faith, to grow closer to you. And we look forward to the time when all of this suffering and persecution and trial will be behind us, and we can worship the Lord forever. Amen. So after laying all of this out, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Therefore, based on all these things I've just laid out in chapter 1 and early chapter 2, taking into careful consideration what it means to be a follower of Christ, remembering how suffering is necessarily linked to salvation, how humility or being other-oriented is necessary for the practice of your faith, therefore, continue to obey. As you have been, he says. So Paul kind of gives the, the church of Philippi here a nice little attaboy, a nice little pat on the back. Good work, he says. Keep it up. 
He's already mentioned and affirmed for them earlier that they've been faithful in, in financially supporting his ministry, and now he's acknowledging that they've been faithful and obedient, that they've, they've made efforts, they're making efforts to walk worthy of the gospel. <clears throat> so keep it up. However, as in every church, in every city, throughout the history of the church and cities, there are going to be struggles and trials and challenges even within the church. I mean, these are separate from persecutions from outside the church. There are going to be issues within the church. You know, we, we know that wherever two or three are gathered together, in Jesus' name, he will be in the midst of them. We also know that wherever two or three are gathered, for any reason, sooner or later, there's going to be issues. It's just the way we work. Which is why Paul stresses unity in all of his letters to all of the churches. Focus on the big picture. Eyes on the prize, people. It's about Jesus. It's not about you or your preferences or your rights. In most cases, even our spiritual liberties are not worth dividing over. Unity. So his instruction here, with which we are no doubt all familiar, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Which means, do all of the stuff that's included in the therefore you got to do all of that stuff. The word work here is an action word. The Greek word means an act or a doing. It requires movement. It requires effort on our part. And notice it does not say work for your salvation, because that's not possible. We can't earn salvation. There's not enough good works that we can do to overcome or compensate for the sins we've already committed against God. But by receiving God's gift of salvation provided through Jesus, our desire begins to change. And our desire becomes, as we looked at last week, our desire becomes to live as though we have earned salvation. Try to live up to it. A right understanding of grace calls us to be grateful and to live up to God's grace. And the phrase, work out your salvation, actually implies not just a one-time act. It's written in the present tense, so it speaks to this present moment we're all in and all present moments moving forward. We are to continue to work out our salvation until the work is complete. Not in this lifetime. Keep working out your salvation. So this really is speaking to the process of sanctification. Our, our, our lifelong pursuit of holiness or Christ-likeness, which is made possible by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but it requires us to act, to listen, to obey the leading of the Holy Spirit, to do some things and not do other things. And this call to action completely negates the idea that so many seem to have in our culture that Christianity is a passive exercise, that it's simply an internal belief system. You can just say, I'm a Christian, and and that's somehow enough. Or it's just a philosophical system, or it's a a metaphysical understanding of life on this planet. I mean, I think Jesus was a good dude. I believe believe in Jesus, or I believe in God. So I must be saved, some think. Okay, that's done. Now I can get back to my life. Now I can get back to doing whatever I want to do. Back to my normal routine. I have my fire insurance now. I have faith in God so I can go back to living the way I was living before. Well, nope. That's not the way it works. That's not an option. Jesus never was and never will be an accessory to our chosen lifestyle. 
That's cultural Christianity, not historic Christianity. When we try to adapt Jesus to our life, rather than adapting our life to Jesus. We've got it wrong. That is not saving faith, if that's what we think. A right understanding of salvation means that we cannot do whatever we want. We cannot live however we want. We cannot continue to sin however we want and shrug it off and say, oh, well, I'm saved. I'm covered. Me and Jesus, we got it all worked out. Jesus is not our get-out-of-jail-free card. And if that's how you see it, if that's how you live, saying you're a believer while living like an unbeliever, then I would argue that you're not truly saved. So when Paul says that we are to work out our salvation, our lives should reflect our gratitude and cause us to align our very will with God's will. That's, that's what he says. We're working out our salvation, but it's God who works in us, both to will and and to work for his good pleasure. To profess Christ, but to ignore God's will, doesn't work. It's impossible. Our action negates our proclamation. We can't say it, not do it. So we're to work, so we're to do the work of salvation and sanctification, but to recognize that we are tools in the hands of the Creator. Our will should align with God's will. Our work should be in accord with God's work. And that includes all of those therefore items that we've discussed. Humility and love and sympathy and other-mindedness. And then let's not forget, there's this other slightly ominous phrase. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Which is interesting, I think. Paul's larger message here in this letter is finding joy. In Christ, finding joy in difficult circumstances. And here he says, and with fear and trembling. How do those mesh? How do those work together? I think, I think part of it is when, when, when we finally come to realize that we have this deep, deep sin that has caused a deeper division between us and God, and we begin to understand that, that God is the creator of heaven and earth. He controls the fates and destinies of the universe. He's going to sit and judge the whole world at some point, that should produce a healthy measure of fear. How are we going to stand up to that? This is not a God to be trifled with. We need to take him seriously. But then when we consider that this fear-inducing God has also provided for us a way out of eternal judgment and damnation, that fear starts to become shaded, colored by this, this great sense of awe. Awe that leads to gratitude. Gratitude that leads to doing, doing the work of salvation, to live up to our calling. We become desirous of doing God's will, of pleasing God, of glorifying God. So we're given, and then we continue to develop the impulse and the desire to please him, to show our gratitude, and that results in a healthy fear and trembling. We know to whom we owe our allegiance. We know that the debt we owe can never be repaid, and we attempt to do our utmost to live up to the calling he's placed on us. And our, our, our fear and trembling is eventually overshadowed even by our desire to do God's will and God's work but it's built on this foundation of fear and trembling, recognizing who we are in the presence of who God is.
And there's just no room here for fire insurance faith. It just doesn't work. There's no room for nominal belief. There's no room for cultural Christianity. Just saying that you believe in God is not the same as working out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. A cat can have kittens in an oven, but that don't make them biscuits. <laughs> I mean, just because your dad was a deacon doesn't mean that you're a Jesus follower. It doesn't mean that you're going to escape eternal torment for your sins unless you take action personally. It's all on you. We all have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Paul's not using this phrase to remind us all that we're just one sin away from the fires of hell. That's not his point. This is not a scare tactic. What he's doing, I think, is, is reinforcing the idea that we have this incredible gift of grace that leads to salvation. We've been saved from the fires of hell, and from our deep and sincere gratitude, we seek every possible way to live up to, to work out our salvation. Following the will of the Lord, as we all live out our lives in different ways, and it's going to look differently for all of us. So God sees our gratitude. People learn about Jesus as a result and God himself is glorified. That's the ideal scenario Paul's laying out here. Paul lays out this pinnacle of the Christian life. He said, Christ died for us. We accept his salvation. We live devoted lives for the sake of Christ and for the glory of God. Amen. That's how it should work. However, Paul knows he's writing to a very human audience. We're hearing this with very human ears. The ideal is great. We have a goal. That's good. But he's still dealing with people. He's still still dealing with the likes of us. So Paul gives us a little footnote, a little add-on here to help us along in the process. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. If you haven't noticed this by now, this is another one of those sections where pretty much every verse is a sermon unto itself. But we're just going to keep it all nice and compact here. Um, And so Paul lays out this this great argument, the the therefores and and how we are to work out our salvation. And then there's this kind of this little hint of a warning, kind of a little little wrist slap maybe. But it's wrapped in a very nice, pretty package with with a lovely little bow on top. Paul's being very diplomatic here. I mean, the church in general is doing well. He's already commended them for their obedience and their faithfulness. He's he's already mentioned their, their financial support of his missionary work. But there might be a hint, as we mentioned before, of there's, there's some little bubbling under-the-surface issue happening in Philippi here. And, and, and maybe this is one of the hints that Paul gives us. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So this might be a foreshadow of the issue that is going to be named later. Um, but this appeal directly relates to our personal sanctification as well as to our corporate unity. This is not an insignificant warning. Grumbling is the idea of, of discontentment. This, perhaps, inner issue that we have that eventually surfaces with 
mumbling, uh, you know, under-the-breath comments. You know, if, if someone's ever said something to you that you didn't care for, you might mumble, you know, under your breath, well, who died and made you boss? Or something along those lines. It's kind of a secret displeasure that will probably eventually work its way out verbally. Disputing is a Greek word that um, is also translated in 1 Timothy as quarreling. So it might be that, that Paul is talking here about grumbling that leads to disputing, grumbling that leads to quarreling, but it's presented here as its own separate issue, and it, it just speaks to any kind of fighting or quarreling that leads to division in the church. Again, we're talking about unity. Don't quarrel over things that lead to division. Where we might quarrel over our spiritual freedoms, perhaps. You remember in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, there were disputes, there were quarrels, there were divisions over whether or not a Christian should eat meat that had been offered to an idol. Now what could have been, what perhaps should have been, a a healthy, robust, body-edifying kind of discussion about the rights and privileges we enjoy in Christ and, and... and our obligations to others, how, how the mature believer should deal with the immature believer, all of those things that could have been bodybuilding and edifying, instead they became disputes and they led to conflict and division. That's what Paul's addressing here. Maintain church unity, people. Keep your eyes on the prize as we rally around the cross. None of these issues that you're grumbling about, none of these issues that you're disputing over, for the most part, not one of them is more important than being unified as followers of Christ. Now, there are doctrinal theological issues which should cause some division, but that's not what he's referring to here. None of these is more important than being unified as followers of Christ. And why is it so important, again, for us to be unified? So that we may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Now, in and of itself, that sounds fairly important. This is still the idea of us living up to our calling, of walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, working on our salvation with fear and trembling. We're going to be held personally accountable for how we've done these things, but then we're reminded, but it's not just about you. How you live is not just about you. You've been saved, you've been forgiven, you've been set apart, not just for your own benefit. You've been given a calling, you've been given a ministry. Jesus told us that we are to be teachers and, and baptizers and disciple-makers. So Paul reminds us that as we work out our salvation, people are watching. Not only are people watching, but the watchers are part of a crooked and twisted generation. Crooked here primarily refers to morality. This is a reference to a morally crooked generation. They're not following a straight, well-defined path. They're perhaps making up their own morals as they go along. They shift maybe from generation to generation. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. Not much has changed since Paul wrote these words. I don't think we really need to defend this point. Um, It's pretty evident given our current cultural climate. We're, we're, We're redefining pretty much everything at this point, morality included. We're not holding to any set pattern. We're not holding to any set established belief system. We're we're, we're changing everything from history to to gender. Even meanings of words are all fair game up for being changed. 
So one could rightly say, we're pretty crooked. And the word twisted is translated in other places as perverse. And the Greek word actually has the meaning of emotionally unsound or disturbed. So crooked morals lead to perverse actions. Now again, I don't think we really need to make an argument for that. In fact, it's probably safer for me if I don't make an argument for that, and it's probably less disturbing for you. But as a culture, we are being forced to accept all kinds of things that have historically been considered perverse and immoral. So when the culture, in Paul's day as well as our own, when the culture has gone so far astray from any moral or or ethical underpinnings, when cultural behaviors that were once shamefully whispered about are now celebrated openly and forcefully, Paul says it's even more important for Christians to be innocent without blemish. Because that culture is watching us. And as we work out our our salvation, as we try to move towards sanctification, as we try to live lives of innocence, minimizing our blemishes, Paul says we're like lights that shine in the culturally dark world. I think Paul knew what he was talking about. Paul talks a lot about light and darkness in all all of his letters to churches. And I think it was no doubt inspired by his own experience. Following his Damascus experience, Paul's telling the story, or the stories retold in Acts 26. Paul says he heard a voice saying, why are you persecuting me? And, and Paul replies, who are you, Lord? And he heard the voice that said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you've seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the idea that the theme of light versus darkness, that Satan versus God, was deeply etched into the conscience of Paul. And rightly so, it was not allegorical for him. He literally went from dark to light from blind to seeing, from spiritual darkness to spiritual truth, from following Satan to following Jesus. I think Paul understood the power of the metaphor, and he used this idea of light like 20 times in his different letters, where light is truth. It's the, it's the, the truth of the gospel. It's the truth of Christ. So here he's saying, as followers of Christ, the more we strive to be blameless, the more we strive to be innocent, the more we strive to live without blemish, The more we hold fast to the word of life, the more that Christ shines in us and through us into the culture of darkness. So he encourages them with, live up to your calling, walk worthy, continue to be light in the darkness. That in the day of Christ, he says, I may be proud that my efforts with you are not in vain. So in a sense, he's saying, we're all in this together. We're all in this for the long haul. We're all in this for the eventual and eternal reward. So let's continue this pattern that has been established. Let's keep up with the therefores. Let's keep doing all of those things. I mean, Jesus himself pulled me, Paul says, pulled me from darkness into the light. I and others who serve me. Those who have helped me see the light so that they can turn from darkness to light. Now they're helping you turn darkness 
to light, and you're to help people in your culture move them from darkness to light. To move all of these culturally darkened people into the glorious light of the gospel. But it's going to take effort. It's going to take perseverance for us all. And as proof of his own effort and perseverance, Paul adds this little caveat. He says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering. So if through my sacrifice for you, Paul says, you end up keeping the faith, then we can all rejoice together. It's almost like he's saying, even if my teaching and preaching and disciple-making ends up wearing me out personally, physically, spiritually, even if I'm completely spent for your sake and for the sake of others, even if my gospel-sharing efforts and perseverance get me killed, it will have been worth it for your faithfulness. And we can all rejoice in that together. Now, Paul, whose primary mission he identified as being sent to the Gentiles, Paul lets his Jewishness show here just a little bit when he says, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering. I mean, that's Old Testament, Old Covenant kind of stuff, right? The drink offering was a, was a part of this God-ordained sacrificial system that was started in the time of Jacob after his name was changed to Israel. But the combination of, of animal flesh and grain and oil and this drink offering of wine, it made a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It was an acceptable sacrifice. In the New Testament, Jesus ushers in the New Covenant, and he makes it clear when he picks up a cup of wine and he says, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the New Covenant in my blood. He connected the dots from the drink offering of the Old Testament to the spilling of his blood, that the pouring out of his blood, that established God's clear plan of salvation into the New Testament. Our salvation was dependent on Jesus' sacrifice. Our salvation and our sanctification may well require sacrifice of us. And you also get here, I think, this sense of Paul's very close, very personal connection with the church in Philippi. We know he, listed, he visited at least twice, probably three times, maybe even four times, some people think. In the last chapter, he mentions people by name. He, he addresses people who have helped him along the way. So there's a real personal connection with Paul. And not, not only with Paul, but with some of Paul's associates as well. And it turns out they were all exerting great effort and showing remarkable perseverance for the sake of the gospel and for this church in Philippi. They're willing to sacrifice for the church at Philippi. Paul goes on, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So Paul refers to Timothy here in really the most glowing terms. I have no one like him, he says. He's he's genuinely concerned for your welfare. He seeks after Christ's interest, not just his own. There are an awful lot of people out there seeking their own interest. You know how valuable he is to me. He's, he's like a son to me. I mean, this is nothing short of a ringing endorsement of Timothy. And it's based on this relationship he's developed with Paul over a considerable, 
considerable amount of time. According to Acts, Paul first met Timothy on his second missionary journey. Timothy was the son of a Jewish mother who was a believer and a Greek father who probably was not. But Timothy became so committed to the gospel and committed to being mentored by Paul that Timothy agreed to be circumcised. That's commitment. Just so they wouldn't upset maybe any Jews in the area who knew that Timothy had a Greek father. It was just for the, for the, the, the sake of the presentation that they could make of the gospel. Timothy was dedicated. Paul and Timothy likely spent 10 or 12 years together working side by side. In fact, it's, it's likely that Paul's last two letters, the last two letters that he wrote were to Timothy, encouraging him to continue the work. So Paul wanted to send Timothy. He hoped to send Timothy back to the church soon. But Paul's own personal status was a bit up in the air at the time. He's uh, in jail. He's not sure what's going to happen, how it's going to turn out. He may have further need for Timothy. But Paul wanted the church to know, because he'd already said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul wanted the church to know that in the event something happened to Paul, in the event that he couldn't come back and visit them, there were others who were prepared to lead the church. There were others who were following Christ. There were others who were good leaders who would step into positions of authority. Men who walked worthy, like Timothy. Not just a bunch of hucksters and charlatans out there preaching Christ just to, to make some money. But they were good men that could be trusted to lead the church forward. But instead of Timothy, instead of sending Timothy for now, Paul would instead send Epaphroditus. He says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So, <clears throat> on the surface, this, this may seem like just kind of a simple narrative, you know, in, in really broad strokes. Paul just writes, well, I was going to send Timothy, but stuff came up, so I'm going to send Epaphroditus back to you. Uh, be nice to him. It's kind of the bookends of the paragraph there. But Paul is really relaying necessary narrative information, but there's a subtext to his comments as well in how he describes Timothy, in how he describes Epaphroditus, and the circumstances around his trip back to Philippi. I mean, it, it seems that the, the, the church in Philippi had initially sent Epaphroditus to visit Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome. And Epaphroditus was the messenger that was sent. He had taken this financial gift from the church to help Paul cover his expenses. He had to pay for his own living expenses while he was imprisoned. And then he was just going to hang around a bit and see if he could be of any further use to Paul. And then he became sick. Sick almost unto death. And in that time of Epaphroditus' suffering, Paul got to see the faith in action of Epaphroditus. How he worked out his own salvation, even in the face of death. Whether or not he was walking in a manner worthy, whether or not his faith was going to carry him through 
these hard times. Which caused Paul to write, Epaphroditus is my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. He's your messenger and he's my he's a minister to my need. So really he's saying Epaphroditus is is he's a servant to us all. Even though it nearly killed him. He stood faithful. He stood firm. Now, Paul's not embellishing details here. He's just using the facts around Epaphroditus to highlight, again, what humility looks like. What other-mindedness looks like. He, he goes on to say, even though Epaphroditus nearly died, he's really been longing to see you all again. He's thinking about you, even though he's the one that nearly died. He's been thinking about you all. He's been distressed over your being distressed about his being ill. I don't know if that's grammatically correct, but I think you understand. He's been ill, and he knows that you know he's been ill, and he's troubled by the fact that you might be troubled by his illness. But you're right to be distressed about him because he nearly died. But God had mercy on him. And not just on him. Paul said, God had mercy on me too. The death of Epaphroditus would have caused sorrow upon sorrow. That is such a great phrase. And this shows the depth of feeling that Paul had developed for Epaphroditus. So he says, so I'm going to send him back to you. And when you see him, receive him in the Lord with all joy. Honor him. Honor him. And men like him. For he nearly died for the work of Christ. You remember last week, we we talked about Paul uh, using Jesus as the model for our humility. And and he made the point that even though Jesus died on a cross, like, like the lowest criminal suffering the worst means of criminal death. I mean, from a human perspective, it was the lowest that Jesus could sink. But from God's perspective, Jesus' sacrifice, his act of ultimate humility, meant that Jesus would be exalted above every other name. He would be honored by all men. He'd be honored above all of creation. So Paul just kind of humanizes that for us here. And he says, Epaphroditus has lived an exemplary life. He's lived up to his calling. He was faithful and obedient, even to the point of death. You know what? He never really made any money at it. He never achieved any real fame. I mean, outside of being talked about in a couple of random sermons every now and again. Epaphroditus was never a TikTok star. He was never a social media influencer. He was just a, just a guy. But he's mentioned in Scripture as someone who followed Christ, at least to the best of his ability. So while the world may have ignored him, while the culture never heard of him, Paul says, church, people of God, you should honor him. And men like him. I mean, yeah, he's going to get a big old well-done, good and faithful servant someday. But for now, let's honor these men and women who are living faithfully. The the quiet, humble, faith-working-out men and women of Christ, let's honor the, the, the men and women of the church who just live normal lives. You know, they're never going to be Dove Award winners, Christian lifestyle bloggers, uh, celebrity pastors... They're the men and women who make up most of the churches in the world. 
just moms and dads and parents and grandparents and accountants and school drivers and uh, bus drivers and school teachers and um, people who live lives that follow Jesus and honor God. People who, who live their lives shining as lights in the world. Who are holding fast to the word of life. Who are trying to be blameless and innocent even while they're surrounded by a crooked and twisted generation. When we live with love and sympathy, when we're looking out for other people, when we're thinking of them as more significant than ourselves, when we practice true humility and we don't grumble or dispute over silly, stupid things, the light of Christ shines on us and in us and through us. We are bringing light to the darkness and the gospel is declared. Now we'll, most of us will never likely achieve fame or notoriety from the world. But then again, the world is not our home. What do we care? So let's work out our salvation with, with fear and trembling, knowing that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If the world should fail us, if the world should even persecute or kill us, it won't matter. As we stand before our maker, it will be as though this never happened. When we hear, welcome home. Don't you feel that? Welcome home, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, I will admit we have a lot of questions. We have a lot of questions about how the world works and, and why it works the way it does and and why we're here now, and sometimes we wonder what our purpose is and what we're supposed to be doing. And, but, Lord, passages like, passages like these make it pretty clear. We are just called to be followers of Jesus Christ, to, to emulate the model that he set, to, to love, to practice sympathy, to practice humility, to, to think of others as more significant than ourselves, to be ambassadors of the gospel. We're not going to get famous doing it. Chances are we're not going to get rich doing it. But we can live fulfilled, contented, joyful lives by aligning our will with God's will, by aligning our work with God's work. So I pray that you you, you help us uh, give each of us um, a, a renewed sense of focus, a renewed sense of purpose as we go back out into the world and face the world, the flesh, and the devil. Lord, that we, we understand on an hour-by-hour, even minute-by-minute basis that we are, we are lights that shine in the darkness of this crooked and twisted generation. And Lord, may we be found faithful. We pray that you continue to build us up, to encourage us, uh, that, that we, we get better at listening to, hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit, and that we would be, if, if Paul were to write a letter to us, that we would be found faithful, that we would be found obedient. And we thank you for giving us the opportunity to, to live that out in our own circles here in Prosser, that we can be light in the, in the dark culture of Prosser, that we can be ambassadors of the gospel. Lord, just help us to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.